We didn't call ourselves an agency. I called us like a collective or something like that. And then over time, it kind of became clear, okay, this is an agency. I need to learn what how an agency works and how to run one, etc. I think the thing that is hard about running an agency is that having an agency means selling time and talent. And so if you don't have the people, if you don't have the talent, you've got nothing to sell. We became entrepreneurs because, more than anything, we want freedom. We want to be in control of our own schedule, income, and life. But unfortunately, that isn't always the reality of being a business owner. I'm Gillian Perkins, and I'm on a mission to take back entrepreneurship for what it's supposed to be. In every episode, I'll share with you how to get the most out of every hour you work, so that you can work less and earn more. Let's get to it. Hi, friends, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I'm interviewing Anna Wolf, the owner of Superscript Marketing, which is a small agency that sells a productized service. So what that means is they sell a service that looks very similar for each of the different types of clients that they serve. And they're not just responding to exactly what their customer is doing and helping them with something, but instead they have a simple service that they sell. Now, as you'll hear in the interview, they have a few different versions of this productized service that they sell to different types of customers. And Anna in this interview explains exactly how their team works, why they have some employees and some contractors, and what led her to make the decision to make some of them employees and contractors. I also ask her all about what some of her biggest expenses are and what she spends her time on. There's so much good stuff in this interview that I know will help you decide exactly how you want want to craft your business model. My desire for this entire business model series is just for you to see some different options in terms of business models, because so often we only see the business models of our mentors online, and we don't see different options for business models in the real world. All right. So with that said, let's get on into this interview with Anna Wolf. Hi there, Anna, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. To start out, could you tell us a little bit about your business as a whole? Kind of give us the short version. What does your business do? We are a financial content marketing agency. We work with financial services firms, primarily investment companies like asset managers or B2C companies like banks, lend online lenders, um, fintechs that service the consumer space, anything in the financial area, we provide content for. It's primarily written content. And we also provide ancillary services around that, such as content strategy, content promotion, SEO, anything sort of related to the production of content for, for this company. So you are a B2B business then, right? You serve bi- businesses, is that correct? Yes, we do. And could you tell me a little bit about the kind of the size of the scale of your operations? How big is your team and how many customers are you serving at any given time? So we have five employees and anywhere between, I would say, 15 and 25 contractors working for us at any given time. Um, so the m- the bulk of our work is produced by contractors, m- primarily financial writers, but also some marketing specialists such as SEO managers, 
um, inbound marketing, consultants, et cetera, graphic designers, anything, again, sort of related to content production. And again, most of that is most of those services are provided by contractors for us. And then we do have some internal employees. We have a couple of hourly employees who kind of look like contractors. Um, They are the service providers for our clients. Um, But because they looked a little bit like employees and we didn't want to get in trouble with the IRS, we turned them into hourly employees. And then we have a couple of employees who support the business. So an operations manager and a client services director. So before you get into talking about the customer side of thing, I have a question there. What made the decision to have some of them be employees and some of them be contractors? It sounds like on the one hand, you wanted to make some of them employees so that you could stay on the right side of the law, right? And just make sure that everything was as it should be. Uh, Why are you leaving the rest of them contractors? Great question. I mean, it's been something that I've struggled with for the last few years. Superscript is nine years old now almost. Um, And for the bulk of that time, I, I would refer to us as like a collective of contractors or like a merry band of contractors. I never had employees all of the people who did the work were contractors. Even the people who helped out with internal superscript operations were contractors. I think part of the reason for that, um, and I'm, I would assume your audience kind of relates to this, is that contractors are an easier inroad to building a team. It's just an easier, even psychologically, I think it just feels easier to take on a contractor versus thinking about, um, you know, investing in an employee and um, sort mm-hmm. of the uh, emotional piece of that, uh, which is, you know, okay, now I'm responsible for somebody else's paycheck versus just I- I'm going to pay them as work comes. And there's a little bit more, you know, risk inherent for the contractor, but a little less risk inherent for me. Also, I would say our contractors and and the ones who remain contractors today are true contractors. They are expert financial writers, marketing consultants, etc. They often have other clients besides just superscript, and they prefer it that way. And they like to set their own hours. They like to work autonomously. They really do fit the criteria for contractor that the IRS has put forward, although I will uh, agree with anyone out there that says that the advice they give is very fuzzy. <laughs> and that's yes. part of the reason that it took me a long time to to make some different decisions around that. We did evolve into having employees a couple of years ago. Number one, because we did have some contractors who were starting to look more like employees. For example, they maybe weren't working with other clients. We were we were their primary source of income. Um, maybe we were sort of dictating a little bit how they did the work. It, sometimes it was kind of like things that you don't think about, like, hey, I'd like to put your picture on my website. I'd like you to be able to say you work for Superscript. You know, I, I want you to feel like a part of this team and I want you to feel invested in Superscript's growth, even if you're still working hourly and part-time. Um, there is sort of a shift, I think, in psychology for somebody going from being a contractor to an employee. And that started to become important to me. And so I toe dipped into it with an operations manager. And then, like I said, started to kind of uh, p- evolve some of these contractor roles into hourly employee positions. And I would say that there's probably more room to do that even within our current contractor bench. I have a lot more questions we could get into about how that's working out for you and other thoughts you have on the matter. But I want to keep today's discussion focused on your business model. So let's keep moving forward and talk about the customers that you serve. How many customers are you typically serving at one time? How long do you work with your customers for? 
So every month we are servicing anywhere between uh, maybe 12 and 20 clients, we call them. And that can ebb and flow from one month to the next. We have some clients who have been working with us every single month for years, you know, six or seven or eight years in some cases. And then we have some clients who just come to us when they need something. So content, as you probably know, can be very ad hoc. They just they have a campaign they're launching and they need a bunch of content for it. So they'll come to us at that point and we'll do some work with them for a finite period of time. And then we might not hear from them for a few months to even a year at points. Um, and then we have other clients, like I said, who we have, we do very regular work with. So for example, we're delivering, you know, five or six or eight or 10 blog posts per month for one client. And we're really the kind of the engine that's fueling their blog. So it just, it kind of depends on what the client needs. So with all that variation, the different lengths of time people work with you and the different amount of content that people need, on average, how many new clients do you need to onboard every month or every year to keep things going as is? Oh, it's a great question. I, I kind of wish I knew I had a, be- a metric for that or a number for that because I, I don't really. And this is going to sound... I think this is going to sound maybe out of reach to like a newer business owner, but it's true that it kind of all works out like magic every month. So I don't think about (laughs) onboarding new clients to, you know, make up for, okay, we've got a lull now. We need to bring someone else in and, you know, take up the, um, get our writers working. Basically, it just kind of works out that we're, we're constantly feeling maxed out or we're constantly feeling short staffed. We have more business than we can handle. And so we don't don't, we don't actually focus on bringing in new clients, at least not right now. I think that's something we have to think about in the future. And I can get into why that is. But um, but for now, we actually feel like there's more demand than there is supply in our business. And so that's, that's more the focus versus trying to bring in, you know, if we do get a lull, we all sort of like take a breath and say, let's all go, you know, do yoga and like meditate and try to take advantage of this break if we can, because we're going to be right back to it, you know, within a week or two. So is that because you magically have new clients coming (laughs) in regularly via, say, word of mouth, so there's never a shortage? Or is it because the current group of clients you have demands all of your team's time and attention? It's a little bit of both, actually, because we do have some attrition from month to month or year to year. It's not that everyone stays with us for years. We do have some great clients who have stayed with us for years. And we've just found that we're, we're a great fit for them. They're a great fit for us. And, and that relationship can continue indefinitely until I don't know. <laughs> um, and then we have a, nat- a natural attrition. Some clients do sort of drop off and we, you know, often what happens is they start to hire and build a team internally to create content. So they don't need us anymore. And uh, I would say that's the most common reason that, you know, that things kind of naturally come to a close with a client. It's a combination, I would say, of the people that are long, that are longer term clients that do tend to, you know, want more and more or that ke- keeps us busy on a recurring basis. So we're not as concerned about bringing in new, new clients. And then we do have a fair amount of new clients coming in. And I would say that that is a function of our, our niche. The fact that we are so specific about what we offer, I think that has been like the number one driver of new business for us for the last nine years, 
we do something super specific. If you are a, you know, a CMO at a financial services company or a head of growth at a fintech or you're at all related to content or SEO or inbound marketing for a financial services firm and you're looking for content to fuel your marketing campaigns or strategy, we are just a bullseye for that. Like we, we specialize so much that, um, and I'll say the other reason for that is that it's really hard for them to find great financial writers. And so part of what they're paying for when they come to Superscript is for our team to do that for them. We go out and find the writers and, and vet them and, you know, ensure that we're, you know, kind of getting the needles in the haystack, um, so that they don't have to do that work, which is time consuming and, you know, writers can move on to other things. And, you know, you might have to be constantly replacing them. And so we're sort of doing that almost like human resources or like recruitment work for them. Um, and that, again, is one of the reasons that we we don't typically have a hard time selling our services to the right client who's looking for what we do. And then also most of our business, all of our business pretty much comes through word of mouth referrals. Either it's somebody that we've worked with before, and they've gone to another financial services company it tends to be a very, you know, you stay in the industry a lot. Um, so they'll bring us in at their new firm, or someone has worked with us and told someone else about their great experience and sent them our way. Um, we do get a couple of hits from the web. I have a couple of articles that happen to perform well from a search perspective. But I would say the majority of new business comes in via referrals or our network. So from what you said before, it sounds like you're kind of maxed out in terms of what your team can handle right now. So I'm curious, does it continue to just magically work out where you have this little bit of attrition and then you have these new clients coming in without you really doing that much effort? Um, and it just is quite in an a state of equilibrium? Or do you have more new potential customers coming in than you can handle since you are already maxed out? So you have to maintain a waiting list. That's something that I think we have thought a lot about this past year, even the maybe the past two years, I would say that I was kind of on the path of, okay, let's see what growth could look like. Let's try to grow, you know, let's uh, clearly there's demand, you know, so what would it what would it mean for us to grow? What what people would I need to hire? How would I need to change the way we change our model potentially, you know, in order to grow? Mm -hmm. And I think that I came to a lot of conclusions. (laughs) It was an awesome learning experience. And I'm glad that I pursued it. The biggest one is that I don't think I ever want Superscript to be a big agency. I, we're always going to be boutique. Um, and that's just, that's like a personality thing. Like I don't want to be the owner of a big company with a lot of employees and a lot of different things going on because I'm an easily, uh, befuddled person. I have a lot going on in my head at all times. And I, it's just really hard for me to keep track of, of things. So I like to keep things simple. I'd say that's, you know, the number one learning that I had. So your question about, you know, do we just kind of stay, do we, do we hope that this sort of magical equilibrium continues? My answer to that is, I don't know if it will continue. I mean, for the first few years of having this business, I would tell my contractors almost every month, like, well, you know, we had business last month, but I don't know if we're going to have business next month. And I was so noncommittal about it again, because I didn't, I, I didn't want to promise anything. I, I didn't have confidence also in my own, you know, abilities as a business owner and, and a salesperson and to bring in business. And so I, I, you know, probably kept everybody a little bit on the edge with my, um, you know, 
my insecurity about our ability to bring in new business each month. But lo and behold, nine years later, it's it's been it's grown very organically, as I said, uh, without a lot of work from me. And so I think that I have come to the conclusion that the the path forward for us is to really be particular is the wrong word, but you know, just to really be as focused as possible on the right fit clients. I think what we offer is something super special. Um, I think it's something that's unique in our market. And for the right clients, it it's a slam dunk. It's 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 so helpful to them. You know, our our actual clients, you know, the marketing professionals that we work with, um, it can help them get recognition within their role, maybe get promoted or get raises. It change it can change their lives if what we're doing is actually helping them be successful. And I think we um, want to be in a position where we are doing that as much as possible. And I think what I've learned is that, you know, when we spent the last couple of years sort of taking every piece of business that came through the door that was sort of checking those high level boxes, you know, financial services and um, needs our needs what we do. We just learned a lot about where we maybe weren't the best fit and neither party was really happy with with the outcome or the relationship. And so our focus going forward is how do we, you know, I think thoughtfully, slowly grow by number one, doing more with our current clients for whom we are a great fit. And number two, trying to find more clients that which is probably like a one at a time thing, right? It's not going to be several clients per month or several prospects per month that I'm talking to. It's going to be a very, uh, again, sort of thoughtful, slow process around bringing on new clients. You mentioned that one of the main things you've learned is about who you aren't the right fit for through the process of working with different clients. What a valuable lesson to learn. I think a lot of people try to kind of jump the gun on that one, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But when they're first getting started with their business, they're told, you know, you need to have a really specific person that you serve. And I agree, but then they kind of make an arbitrary specific person and maybe that person doesn't exist or is a very uncommon type of extremely uncommon type of person because it's a figment of their imagination. And so then they wonder why they can't find any of that person in the real world. Uh, but what you've done here is you've kind of evolved to your target customer is over time as you've learned more and more about who is really right for your services. And again, I don't disagree with the fact that we should have a specific customer and you just kind of have to do that a little bit blind at the beginning. It's just the reality of the matter. But I also love how you've allowed it to evolve over time. Oh, it's so difficult. And you know, we I work in marketing. So I'm constantly advising, you know, clients and peers, hey, you should have a, you know, sh- you should have personas or audience segments or whatever you want to call it, you should have a target audience that you're that's pretty clear, especially when you're writing for them when you're creating content, right? Mm-hmm. Like you want to know who's reading it, who's on the other side of that. Um, but at the same time, in my experience, it was definitely throwing spaghetti against a wall for many years. Um, and not that, you know, I think every client engagement was was fruitful in that it was a learning experience. We we did, we always kind of came away with, a, oh, that's why that doesn't work. Or I think a big learning I've had is that, you know, when I started to think about growth, I started to be in communities where growth was a priority. And I was hearing all these 
other services we could be offering and ways that we could be, you know, increasing our recurring revenue, for example. And I think I was thinking like, oh, that's, I'm like missing out on that. I'm not, you know, I'm not taking advantage of those opportunities. I'm not doing those things. And as soon as I started to toe dip into those other things, I realized this is not my skill set. And I don't actually want to be someone who has to, um, you know, go find people to do this thing that I don't really understand. Like, that's just not my path. I think it's for some people, it's totally their path. They they really want to grow and add new services and do new things and be able to service their clients in a more holistic way. I think that's actually really helpful for the client. We've tried to solve for that by being extremely compatible with the other pieces in their marketing vendor relationships, right? We work really closely with their PR firm. We work really closely with their growth marketing team. We might work with their sales team to produce collateral. We try to be kind of nimble and compatible instead of trying to be all things to all people, because that was just a discomfort that I realized pretty quickly wasn't going to go away. So I have one more random question about who you serve and what you offer before we shift gears a little bit. This might be a complete rabbit trail, but when we were setting up, you mentioned that the microphone you're using is a microphone you've only used to record courses. So does your business also sell courses? (laughs) Very recently. That's a new addition. Um, And I realize I just kind of waxed poetic about not adding new services, but this is actually like a new model that we are moving into. I mean, there there have been a confluence of data points, I think. I've, I've been thinking for a long time about essentially packaging our expertise after, you know, I've been in this, I've been in the financial services marketing space for 17, I think 18 years now. I'm in a really long time. And, um, and Superscript, as I mentioned, is almost nine years old. And over this time, we have, we have created a lot of different frameworks and philosophies around financial content marketing that we think could be really helpful to certain types of clients who can't afford our services or or just aren't a good fit, as I mentioned, like they're not looking for kind of this like high touch, high quality, bespoke, you know, monthly content service that we offer. They really just want to learn um, how to be successful at financial content marketing on their own. And the financial space is so unique. You know, there are compliance issues. There's a lot of things you can't say. There are a lot of tools in the online marketing space that you can't use. You can't at, you can't solicit testimonials from your clients if you're a financial advisor. So how do how do people online know that you're good at your job if they can't even read like a review from someone? And so there there are a lot of really unique challenges, particularly for financial advisors, that I think we help we've learned to solve a bit, or we've learned to help them kind of capitalize on what is available to them using these frameworks that we've developed. And so that's what the courses are. They are financial content marketing, online marketing courses, specifically right now for financial planners and financial advisors and registered investment advisors, RIAs. But we are also potentially expanding that into like smaller asset managers, which are like mutual fund and ETF providers. And are those courses something you're actively selling right now or you're just in the production process? We have one course live right now, but it's uh, it's basically in beta mode right now. So we're gathering feedback. We're, you know, hearing from the the um, people, the users that are taking and we're continuously improving it. And I would say we're going to hit the ground running pretty quickly in Q1. Okay, can I get really real with you about something for a minute here? 
I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks you should be able to learn how to grow your business without spending thousands of dollars on bloated training. Seriously, there's no reason it needs to be as expensive as a lot of online courses are. That's why I don't offer really pricey coaching. I want to teach real people how to build really profitable businesses at a price that actually makes sense. So I asked myself, how can I connect with you in a really personal way, teach you everything you need to know to grow your business and help you actually do it? And how can I guarantee this won't cost an arm and a leg? Asking myself those questions four years ago is how I came up with the idea for Startup Society the program I wish had existed when I was struggling to get my online business off the ground. So if you're a freelancer, a coach, or a course creator, and you want my guidance, plus the support of my own team to build your business, then Startup Society is for you. Just head to startupsociety.com to learn more and find out when enrollment next opens. I can't wait to meet you, show you the ropes, and guide you to start growing your business a whole lot faster. Startupsociety.com. Building an online business doesn't have to be so complicated. So let's shift gears a little bit now and talk about money. I'm really curious about kind of the ballpark, at least, of how much you charge for your services and whether most of your customers pay similar amounts or if you have some customers who maybe make up the bulk of your revenue. Talk to me a little bit about that, about your the income that your business makes. So we have two different sides to our business. We, um, we generally call them B2B and B2C, although there can be nuances that, uh, that mean that those things aren't true. On the B2B side of things, we are working with clients who are typically investment managers, so asset managers, as I mentioned, index providers, or other types of companies that manage investments or work with investment professionals. And on that side, there's just a a different level of expertise required. Most of our writers have been working for asset managers for years. Some of them have certain certifications like their CFA or Series 7, they have very deep knowledge of the space, which is what the that clientele requires. And because of that, the engagements tend to be very consultative. And we do, they do contract us to, for example, write a white paper on fixed income or something like that. But typically, what we're doing is just working hourly for them. So it's a very easy business model for us. We charge hourly, we pay hourly, and there's a margin built in to those, you know, to those two numbers, basically. At points, it can get a little more complicated. For example, if the client wants us to provide an estimate at the outset of the piece of content, but we've done this for so many years that we've been able to take all the data from all of the content that we've created and, and we've created like a pricing calculator that gives us a good idea of what how long it's going to take. So we're still charging hourly, but we're able to have we have a little bit of a magic eight ball there that can help us um, help the client set their budgets, basically, mm-hmm. on the B2C side of things. So that's more like banks, online lenders, financial technology companies that are focused on consumers or individual investors or borrowers or, you know, just regular folks like you and me. Um, so on that side, the budgets tend to be a little lower and the, the expertise required is, is different. So they still do require that the writer has pers- typically personal finance expertise. And sometimes they require a pretty deep level, you know, someone who's like a credit expert or tax expert. Um, and so in some cases, we're charging more 
in that style that kind of you you know you've got somebody who they want to charge hourly they're a they're a contractor they're an expert in their own right they have their own business they want to be able to charge hourly and so you know if the client's okay with that we're charging them hourly as well um but many of them the model is much more kind of a retainer i mean the i would say the official way to say it is a fixed price for a set number of deliverables each month so it's kind of a it's a package essentially and so it would be we're going to deliver six blog posts per month we're going to manage your editorial calendar we're going to write social media posts for all of the blogs you know whatever is included we're going to do the seo um, keyword research we're going to optimize all the blog posts uh, maybe we're also doing SEO maintenance if if it's an SEO client or SEO metrics or or just even content marketing metrics and include that package costs X. And again, we've sort of created a um, a calculator that helps us understand, okay, to get this done, we would have to pay contractors or we'd, we would have direct labor, our internal service providers spending this amount of time on it. And so it would cost us X to get this done. So we're going to charge Y for the package. And so between these two different sides of the business, the B2B and the B2C customers, how what's the breakdown there? Do you serve a lot more of one type of customer than the other? It's been about 50-50, actually. It's really interesting. And I, I at points, I've felt maybe a little stretched by having two different business models. And I've thought about, I mean, B2B probably makes more sense from a, um, my background. So I've worked in, I worked at an asset manager. I'm a financial writer myself. I probably should have said that up top. And I wrote investment content primarily. But I think the B2C space is just so much fun too. Um, and I love that they are more focused on, on SEO. And that's something for us as content creators it's so gratifying because they can see the results of that. So I think I just like both spaces so much on the B2B side, you know, it's less measurable. The, the, you know, the, uh, a lot of times the goal is like thought leadership, which is how do you measure that really? I mean, I, there probably is a way, but, um, but I, I find that really gratifying too. On the B2B side, we get to work with these really smart people. It's often very smart, humble and kind people um, who just know a lot about the space and we're, you know, um, soaking it all in and learning ourselves and, and helping them raise their profile and platform. And I, that's a really gratifying experience. So I guess long story short, it's just been hard to choose between the two because they both have unique benefits from our perspective. It seems pretty clear to me that your biggest expense must be your contractors and employees. But I'm curious, does your business have any other significant expenses? So we do have pretty low expenses because we're a completely virtual team. We don't have an office. That tends to be a really big expense for an agency. And we will always be that way. I We were a virtual team before the pandemic and we'll continue to be so after or if there is an after. Um, our financial model would classify contractors as cost of goods sold versus an expense, mm-hmm. like overhead expense. And yeah. so... Late direct labor are employees who work, you know, on services for clients and cost of goods sold is like, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, over 50% of our of our revenue goes out the door to that, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And then the other things that we spend money on are professional development. So I'm somebody who um, I'm just allergic to reinventing the wheel. And I'm, you know, I'm a solo business owner and it gets lonely. And I do tend to spend money on things like coaching groups and 
uh, mastermind groups and places that I can both connect with other people who are having similar experiences and learn from them and, you know, hopefully provide some insight from my experiences as well. And then the other expense I would say is, uh, you know, obviously, we just started doing this again, uh, because of the pandemic, but getting our team to meet up in person. So we have an annual summit, where we bring either all or part of our team, it was a limited number of people this last time, but we're, we do plan to kind of expand that because I do think that FaceTime is so important in terms of building relationships with your team members. And, you know, I want us to all love working with each other and and do something fun, you know, and uh, kind of help our team celebrate our wins together and, and that sort of thing. I just think that's really hard to do over Zoom. So that's a place that I plan to spend even more money in the coming years. Absolutely. The final thing I would like to talk to you about today, Anna, is about your time. As the business owner, what are some of the things that you spend the majority of your time on? And also, how much time do you work each week to run your business? That's a great question. And actually, um, this is like a, you know, do as I say, not as I do thing. I don't track my time very well. And every coach I've ever had is like, you need to track your time. Like, you need to know where your time is going. And um, I tend to be a little bit seat of my pants, even though aspirationally, I want to be time blocking and doing deep work and, you know, getting in the flow, etc. I have not been super successful as that, at that. So I don't have a lot of advice to share there. I'm a, a student myself of, you know, trying to figure out how to best spend my time. I would guess that I work around 30 hours a week. That's something that's very important to me is that I I personally don't want to be working nights and weekends. I quit my job and started Superscript. And actually, I started as a freelance financial writer. So the reason for that was I wanted more flexibility and autonomy in my schedule. And I never want to be someone who's working 60 hour weeks. It's just never going to be me. And so I also try to structure Superscript that way as well. It's a goal of mine that anyone that works for Superscript full time is not working even 40 hours a week, if possible. And I do think there can be you know, finite situations where you have you're we're doing a campaign or something and you're kind of on and there's more time, you know. Um, but the hope mm-hmm. is that it evens itself out with those those lulls, as I mentioned. And I think we're hopefully, you know, our employees kind of are used to that kind of up and down and and we keep it manageable over, you know, kind of over the average time frame. And then what do I spend my time on? I spend probably at least 50% of my time right now providing services still. And that's something that I would like to change. I've, you know, tried to kind of reduce the amount of time that I'm writing and editing as much as possible. And I just continue to kind of chip away at it as we build our team and we have more seasoned people be able to kind of take over uh, more and more work. My goal would be to keep working on a few sort of key clients, especially the ones that need more consulting versus content creation services. I really enjoy that work. I find it super gratifying and I don't I don't want to be out of client services completely. And then the rest of the time I would rather be, um, you know, right now, the rest of the time I'm working on the business. So it's like financial reporting and, you know, what's going on with this QuickBooks thing. And, you know, we've been trying to revamp our website for two years and I kind of do that in the margins of my time and, um, you know, clearly have not been super successful at it. But it's kind of all the all of the various and sundry 
tasks that go into running a business that kind of just tend to fall by the wayside because clients are our number one priority, obviously. So to wrap this up, Anna, I would love to hear some of your thoughts on the pros and the cons of your business model. So let's start with the cons. So if someone was considering starting a business with your business model, what are some things that you might tell them that are along the lines of, it's a great business model, but there is this one thing. Yeah, and this is something I only recently gained the words to articulate. Um, I, I it couldn't put my finger on it for a really long time. But I did not come from the agency world. I worked in-house. I was an, the editor of the blog at my last company, a big asset manager. And I didn't even really work you know, externally with agencies. So I had very little uh, understanding of how an agency works and how to make it successful. And even for the first few years of Superscript, as I started to bring, again, very naturally, you know, I had friends, I had colleagues who were um, wanted to freelance, write, And I said, Oh, hey, come work with me. I've got more business than I can handle. We didn't call ourselves an agency. I called us like a collective or something like that. And then over time, it can it kind of became clear, okay, this is an a- agency, I need to learn what how an agency works and how to run one, etc. And the thing that I recently learned, which is, I think the thing that is hard about running an agency is that having an agency means selling time and talent. And so if you don't have the people, if you don't have the talent, you've got nothing to sell. And that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we do something very specific. It's really hard for our clients to find the people who do this work really well. And my job at a certain point, it was a fever pitch of just like trying to find writers, trying to find great financial writers. And I did realize at a certain point that like, I actually don't want that to be my job. I don't want that to be my full time job (laughs) recruiting financial writers. Um, And so I would say, um, you know, it might not be as acute for somebody who's running more like a digital agency or a, mar- you know, a different kind of marketing agency, again, because what we do is so specific, our talent pool is a lot smaller, I think. But in general, I mean, I'm sure everybody's reading about or experiencing the talent wars that are going on right now, I'm hearing it from friends who are agency owners who do different kinds of agencies, that it's just it's really hard to, to find great people. And it's hard to afford them if they're great. And there's just a lot a lot in the business model that's about essentially recruitment and HR. And so I would say if you're not somebody who's inclined toward those things, then this can be a difficult model. And then how about the pros? What are some of your favorite things about your business model? So many things. Probably my number one favorite thing is the same reason that I quit my job and and fell into this accidentally in the first place, which is that I have I am my own boss. I have control over my schedule. I have two kids. I prioritize them as much as possible. And I have a I have a, you know, with some exceptions, I have a pretty good work life balance. And that is super important to me. I also love that I am creating flexible, well-paid jobs for other people like me who can't or won't do the nine to five uh, work from an, you know, commute to an office thing. And granted, that's less special now. Uh, You know, now I feel like a lot of a lot of employers are offering that kind of flexibility, which is awesome. I'm happy to see that sea change. But I, I am happy that Superscript is an employer that's very parent and caretaker friendly because we offer that kind of flexibility. And I would say the third thing is it is super gratifying to work with 
our clients. It's, it's really when, again, when it's a great fit and we're really hitting the mark for them and the relationship is great. You know, we love, we love getting on the zoom with them. We, we, um, love getting emails from them. There's a, there's a rapport there and a camaraderie and it's like, we're in this together and we're crushing it and we're seeing the results and, and they're happy. You know, I think that is just like, I'm like over the moon about that when that happens. It's like, what else could you ask for in a job than like I helped someone? Well, Anna, thank you so much for everything that you shared with us. It has been really interesting to learn more about your business model and how your company ticks. I appreciate your time and everything that you shared with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Work Less, Earn More. Now, here's what I want you to do next. Take a screenshot of this episode you're listening to right now and share it out on your Instagram stories. And when you do, make sure you tag me at Gillian Z Perkins so I can see you're listening. Sharing on stories is going to help more people find this podcast so they too can learn how to build their business in a way that allows them to work less and earn more. And if you really love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts right now and leave Work Less, Earn More a review to give it a boost and help even more people find it. Okay, let's wrap this up. I'm Gillian Perkins, and until next week, stay focused and take action.